You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. And this is where I think the poll within Judaism school differs, is both of those other schools posit that there's something fundamentally wrong with Judaism, and Christianity, or Paul in particular, solve it. And so the Paul within Judaism school would argue there's nothing that Paul thinks is fundamentally wrong with Judaism. There's no sort of like flaw in the system or the theology or anything else. It's just Paul within Judaism. He's still within Judaism, but believes that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. I'm so excited. My guest is Dr. Matthew Thiessen. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University. I've been a fan of Matt's work for quite some time, really benefited a lot from his scholarship. He's written a number of books that have been really uh, influential and important, beginning with his PhD, published dissertation, award-winning book, Contesting Conversion. His next book, Paul and uh, the Gentile Problem, a really excellent book. Some of the scholarship which undergirds the book we're talking about today, Jesus and the Forces of Death, which I, I've recommended on previous episodes. And then lastly, the book we're talking about today, A Jewish Paul, which is an introduction to a way of reading Paul within Judaism. It's it's a way of reading Paul that is prominent among some scholars and um, relatively, I would say, unknown for many non-specialists. And so I think this book is super important. Matt does an excellent job of making his case, but writing clearly in a way that you'll be able to grasp and really enjoy. I think that also comes across in the interview. I think he's he's really clear and succinct in his answers, and that that's the way the book is as well. And so I think you're really, really going to enjoy this interview. And if you haven't already, you're going to want to go out and grab this book. It's a really enjoyable and a lot to chew on. So highly, highly, highly recommend you grab a Jewish Paul as soon as you can. And with that, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Matthew Thiessen. Hey, welcome everybody back to the podcast. I'm super excited today to have on Dr. Matthew Thiessen. I've been a fan of his work for quite some time. This is actually the first time that I get to sit down and have an extended conversation with him. So I'm really excited. We're talking about his new book, A Jewish Paul. Dr. Thiessen is really one of the leading Pauline scholars uh, today, one of the leading voices within what's called the Paul Within Judaism School, which we'll be talking about. The book is in many ways an introduction to that way of, of looking at Paul. And uh, so super excited to have you on, Matt. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Max. Yeah. Just to start off, and you, it could be as brief as you like, but I always like yeah. to give my guests a chance to just give kind of a little bit of the backstory Biblical studies, religious studies is such a strange world in many ways, and we all have a different path in, how, in terms of how we got into it and why we're motivated to do the work we do. So anything you might want to share about how you got into studying ancient Judaism, ancient wow. Christianity, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, there's a four-hour answer and there's a two-minute answer, so I think right. we'll have a two-minute answer. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Now, I, I uh, had no idea this is where I would be in my life um, when I was in high school and even in the first years of university. I had intended to go into science and medicine and uh, had a successful, uh, financially successful career. All of a sudden, I'm in science at university and no longer interested in what I'm studying. And the only course I'm interested in, and in fact, the only course I'm attending is a philosophy course. And so I realized uh, I needed to reconsider my future. So this sort of led me into studying religious studies and philosophy, and then realizing within that that my mind is wired 
particularly um, to be interested in questions of, of, you know, textual analysis, close textual analysis in the ancient world. So I got really interested in New Testament, mm. realized very soon I need to know more and more and more about the ancient world outside of the New Testament to understand it. And so that's what got me into ancient Judaism and early Christianity. That's cool. Yeah. And um, this book, A Jewish Paul, I, I mean, there's so many things I love about it. One is I've as a teacher, I've actually struggled in the classroom to introduce the Paul within Judaism approach to students because it's so foreign. And this is the first book I've read where I'm like, yes, I think I could give this to students. They would get it. We could yeah. have a conversation about it. Uh, I feel like once I get through some of the other approaches, they've already kind of had their, their heads spinning. And, uh, and so it's, it's a little bit tricky. Would you mind giving us maybe just kind of a, a brief summary of the various yeah. kind of camps as it, as it pertains to interpreting Paul and what makes the Paul within Judaism approach distinct? Sure. You know, I think most listeners uh, of Christian background are probably familiar with just really one camp. And they wouldn't mm -hmm. even know it's a camp. It was just the way to read Paul. It's the way I was taught to read Paul. And that's what scholars often refer to as the Lutheran camp. And that's that Paul, as an ancient Jew, believed he needed to earn God's favor by living righteously and perhaps living perfectly. Mm -hmm. And at some point he came to realize he wasn't doing it, couldn't do it. And so was filled with sort of self-doubt and this gospel of, of grace in Jesus Christ freed him up from that self-doubt. And so there's it sort of constructs a view of Judaism at the same time that it's talking about Paul, and that's that Judaism is a religion of works righteousness. You have to earn God's salvation, but you can't. And so you're really in a bind, and Christianity solves that bind. And there's sort mm -hmm. of like a, an inherent flaw mm -hmm. within the religion of Judaism that Christianity solves. So that's one camp. The second camp, and, and if, 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 other, if people know another camp, it'll be this camp. It's what's called the New Perspective on Paul, right. uh, which dates to the early 80s. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not know, so new anymore, right? Uh, yeah. every, every year we keep using it, it becomes a little sillier and sillier. But, yeah. but so the New Perspective is basically the recognition based on the work of Ed Sanders in 1977 that Judaism believed in God's grace. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it's not works versus race, what's Paul's problem with Judaism? New perspective proponents like Tom Wright and James Dunn suggested, okay, it's not about works righteousness, it's about ethnic distinctives and ethnic pride. And so the problem with Judaism isn't that it's works righteousness, it's that it's ethnocentric. And Paul solves that problem. So in Wright's famous words, it's not race, it's grace in, in mm -hmm. Paul's gospel, which has a nice resonance with, with sort of modern contemporary thinking around, around race and the problems of uh, mm -hmm. racism in our world. Both, and this is where I think the Paul within Judaism school differs, is both of those other schools posit that there's something fundamentally wrong with Judaism and Christianity or Paul in particular solve it. And so the Paul within Judaism school would argue there's nothing that Paul thinks is fundamentally wrong with Judaism. There's no sort of like flaw in the system or the theology or anything else. It's just Paul within Judaism. He's still within Judaism, but believes that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So that's what the book and that's what this whole school is sort of yeah, trying to make sense of. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great. Would, would you say, I mean, is it fair to say that a lot of Christian theology over the, the centuries and millennia has felt the need to have a kind of negative foil against which to present the, the pristine nature of the Christian faith and Judaism or 
Judaism as a cipher for Catholicism or whatever uh, has functioned in that way for a lot of Christian theology. So in other words, a lot of times Christians feel the need to say something really great about Jesus, like he liberated people from something. And that something tends to be Judaism or adjacent to uh, Judaism. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is almost a two thousand year tradition now, mm-hmm. so it's very hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. And of course, our New Testament texts and Paul's texts in particular are quite polemical. So it's easy to take those polemics and say, "Well, what's he talking about?" He's not only talking about our opponents, whatever they are today. They're also about his opponents. Well, they must be the Jews, mm-hmm. and I think that's where the mistake gets made. It's not that they're the Jews or Judaism. It's 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 something else that Paul's battling. Yeah, great. So you you have this great line and chapter about making Paul weird again. Yeah. Um, so Paul is is in many ways he's this familiar figure to us. But what what does it mean? What do you mean by make Paul weird? What does that what does that look like for yeah. you? I think I um you know I don't remember when I first heard it, but I've seen Matt Nobinson use it and use it in, in writing. So I think I've I've yeah. taken this from Matt and I try to, to hat tip to him. But I think that one of the points is it's really easy to domesticate Paul. And to make him familiar. We all do this with everything, right? Anytime mm-hmm. you go to another culture, another country, uh, or try to interact with, with something different, you try to make it make sense with what you already know. And that makes sense that we do this with ancient people, and especially with sacred texts like Paul's writings. But when we do that, we maybe misunderstand him at times. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, any effort to read Paul, I think, has to struggle. And it's hard. It's mm-hmm. and, and it's downright mm-hmm. impossible at the end of the day to do it perfectly. But struggle mm-hmm. with trying to make Paul or let Paul be the first century Jew that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, not the 21st century, you know, North American or Canadian like me. Yeah. And why, why this is so tricky, too, is Paul is probably the place where we have the hardest time doing that if we're a person of faith, because especially a Protestant, Paul's texts have been the primary source of Protestant theology. And so, you know, I find that sometimes in a religious context, people are more willing to do that with other parts of the Bible. Yeah. But when it comes to Paul in particular, the walls of resistance go up because right. really prized doctrine starts to come into question or at least needs to be nuanced differently. And then and then um, that can feel really threatening too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, if I can give a little anecdote here, when I was yeah. writing my dissertation on circumcision, uh, which was sort of one way to get into Paul, I had numerous Christians say, okay, so why are you writing on circumcision? And I said, well, you know, it's a really important issue in Paul's letters and in the first, in the first uh, century of the Christian movement. And I had so many Christians say, Paul never talks about circumcision. And I thought that was really interesting. And it's like, yeah. these people read, read the Bible a lot. Yeah. But when they get to the sections that don't make sense to them or aren't relevant to them, like we all do, it's very easy just to skate over to get to the section that feels familiar and comfortable again. Totally. And so I think this is, it's one of our, it's how we read. It's a reading strategy, but we all do it and we all have to resist it. And it's really hard to do. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's such a good point. Yeah, it's it's easy once you spend a lot of time with Paul to say like, yeah, circumcision is a huge issue. But if you are growing up in a tradition where those aren't the parts of Paul you read in right. church or you hear preached, you hear other parts, and that and that's just kind of explained as like, yeah, this old archaic thing. It's it's really easy. I can see why they would say that. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask you a little bit about your your chapter on acts because i find that that i think that's really fascinating and i know you did a lot of work on acts in your first book as well yeah it's so interesting so i think there's two facets to it i'd love to hear your thoughts on both of these implications one is you're you make a historical argument that 
Luke, the author of Luke Acts's presentation of Paul, more or less gets Paul right. And and the background to that, like for some that may not know the scholarly discourses, many scholars have posited Luke Acts comes after Paul that the the writer is trying to sort of mediate between different appropriations of Paul and like work against what we might call an antinomian reading of Paul or an anti-law reading of Paul, which is the way that a lot of Protestants have read Paul. And so so you've got that historical argument, but then you also, towards the end of the chapter, make a theological argument that for Christians who are reading these texts as sacred scripture, well, Acts is very intentionally positioned in the canon to introduce us to this figure, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and that the narrative presentation should have um, should be a guide to then how we read the letters of Paul. So I, I just love to hear anything you want to share about that, because I think that's yeah. a really fascinating part of the book. Uh, you know, it, so I didn't do a lot of poll work in my in my PhD. I, I did, you know, some stuff on the Gospels and Acts. And uh, when I first wrote about Acts in this depiction of Paul, I was surprised surprised to find it, frankly. There's a, a law-observant Paul in Acts, and um, all the way to the end. And he repeatedly says it and shows it, especially Acts 21, for anybody mm-hmm. who wants to sort of look at this. And the point is always about Gentiles in the Jewish law, never about should Jews or Jewish believers keep the Jewish law? And so at first I thought, well, this is very different from Paul. I don't know how they're going to reconcile or if I can reconcile these two. And as I studied Paul in my next project, I realized there is a lot more similarity here. And I think Luke is getting Paul more accurately. So this this Paul within Judaism school has sometimes been called the radical new perspective on Paul. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hilarious because there's nothing radical about a perspective that's already yeah. in the New Testament canon. And there sure isn't anything new about it. Um, yeah, what did you sure. call it? You call it like the old, What I forget how you titled the chapter. It was funny. It was, uh, let me see if yeah. I can find it real quick. Long, long lost? Long oh, lost. Yeah, long, yeah, yeah. Radical yeah. new or long lost reading of Paul. Right, right. Which yeah. is right there in the canon. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And so then from a theological perspective, also, you suggest like, hey, this is... This is authoritative scripture in terms of how Paul is being presented. So yeah. w- what would it me- look like for a Christian reading of Paul to take take Acts seriously? Yeah. I think that's really, really interesting. I, I've had fun actually going through Acts with students. I teach a class on Acts yeah. uh, almost every semester, and I spend quite a bit of time showing them, you know, Paul doing so, like forcing them to kind of reconcile with like, so where did Paul get arrested and what was he uh, doing exactly? And what yep. was the, you know, what was going on there and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's fun to kind of, yeah, to set that out. Um, do you see a distinction between, I mean, in, in Acts, Paul is the, he's obviously the apostle to the Gentiles, but it seems like the, the diaspora of Israel is included within, within that, right? Synagogue first and, and outward. And, and oh. then w- within the letters, as you point out, the uh, implied audience is always encoded as ethne Gentiles, yeah. and so do you. What what do you make of that uh, d- distinction between Luke Acts and Paul's letters? Yeah, so I don't know what the the minority and majority position is on this anymore, but I think it's a growing number of scholars are are now thinking that Luke has access to some of Paul's letters, and I belong mm-hmm. to that that camp. I don't know how many, but I take some of the way he's he's writing about Paul is he's taking these letters and reconstructing Paul's life and mission. And so, you know, Paul in Romans 1 talks about the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
-hmm. Well, that's exactly what Luke depicts, right? Mm -hmm. Paul goes to a new city. He goes to the Jewish community in that city. And when that Jewish community reacts to the gospel, and it's never pure rejection at all, ever, but some accept and some don't, and they all debate. And then Paul says, and now I'm taking it to the ethnic. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm taking it to the Gentiles. And so I think that's Luke's, Luke is trying to show what he thinks Paul is saying in Romans 1. And so okay. uh, it's sort of a narrative interpretation of, of parts of Paul's letters that Luke is up to there. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. I do think, I mean, I do think it's impossible if you think about Paul going to a city, like like historical flesh and blood Paul. He goes to a new city. He doesn't know anybody. Where is he going to go first? The Jewish community, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and they're the ones who are going to understand Jewish scriptures and the Gentiles that are in those communities are going to understand Jewish scriptures better than, you know, pagan, pagan Joe down the road. And so it makes sense. Historically, that's where Paul would start. And then he'd branch out from there into the larger community. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I'd love to get into this. I think it's a big topic and a big part of the book. Actually, of your previous book as well is, is or sorry, not previous book, before that, uh, the, 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 the second book you wrote, um, The Gentile Problem, Paul's Construction of the Gentile Problem. And that's a new way of framing it for people that aren't familiar with the discourse, because like, what do you mean, Gentile Problem? I'm used to Paul talking about the human problem, right? Yeah. And so what is, yeah, what does Paul see as the Gentile problem? And how does that kind of fit within the ways in which his contemporary Jews, the, at least the evidence we have, you know, yeah. we're thinking about their, their neighboring Gentiles. Yeah. So if you open up uh, a modern translation of, of the Bible to Romans 1, you see those headings. And, mm -hmm. and most of those headings in Romans 1, what, 18 are, are, I would argue, incorrect. And that's about the sinfulness or wickedness of all of humanity is usually yeah. what they're titled. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, a really concentrated point where Paul talks about the Gentile problem. And I will say this in, in defense of this position, pretty much all early Christian interpreters understood it as such. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't take it as all of humanity. They didn't take it as related to Jews. That's Romans as, 1, 1, 18 through 32, yeah, that big. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Max. yeah well, yes, exactly. It's a long section. And so the problem, it starts with these people have rejected God. And instead of worshiping uh, the living God, they worship lifeless idols. And you become what you worship. And so these Gentiles now worshiping lifeless idols become like that in, in the sense that they become morally dead. And so that we have this long laundry list of um, ancient sins and vices listed mm -hmm. in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So there's sort of a twofold problem of worshiping the wrong thing and then living out the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then third, so it's immorality, but that it results in uh, mortality, death. Mm -hmm. And so for Paul, the Gentile problem needs to be, there's a, it's a threefold Gentile problem that needs to be solved that his gospel about Jesus does solve. Yeah, so it's idolatry. Like, would you say that it's the... Worshipping the wrong thing then leads to kind of the downward spiral, ultimately to death. And yeah. so Gentiles are in the state of being kind of dead in their sins or whatever, as Paul, actually Paul would say. And then so that's the problem. What's his uh, solution then yeah. to, the, to that problem? Yes. Yeah, so what do you do when you're dead? <laughs> There's not a whole lot. And so I think this is this is one of Paul's. Pro so there are, you can think about the Gentile problem in numerous ways. There's the problem that the Gentiles have. There's the mm -hmm. problem of what to do with the Gentiles. And so this is, I think, a lot of Paul's rhetoric and polemic is trying to oppose one, what he thinks is an awful solution to the Gentile problem, and that's apply the law to them, the Jewish mm -hmm. law. Give them the Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And Paul's argument is, well, no, they're, they're dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, law, yeah. the law is good and holy and wonderful, but it can't produce 
life. Yeah, make the dead living. And so And what's and interesting just to jump in there too is no. we find other Jewish texts where that's precisely the solution that's being yeah. presented. I think it's implicit in Letter Veristeus for Maccabees very much so. Sure. Yeah. Um I've probably in a sense in Philo and Josephus and and so this idea that, and it, it makes sense too, if you're a Jew living among Gentiles, you're trying to present your way of life as a kind of philosophy way of life or whatever the law can can be can do for you, can be a source of uh, moral therapy in, yeah. in a similar way that other pagans had, you know, philosophers and stuff had presented their way of life as a p- potential yep. solution. So it makes it makes sense that yeah. there would be some uh, some Jews out there, maybe Jewish Christians who, who look at the law of Moses and say, right here, you've got the you've got the path to life. If you yep. follow it, it can constrain your passions, your desires. You can live a more righteous or holy life if you uh, live by the law. Yep. So it makes makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and uh, you, you mentioned Philo, you're exactly right. He's got that exact system. So the issue then is how bad is the Gentile problem? Is it something that one can apply moral therapy to? So they're not in an awful situation. They just need some therapy. Or is this like we need to resuscitate these people? And Paul thinks we need to resuscitate these people. Mm-hmm. That's how bad the Gentile problem is. And so you need a, a pretty significant sort of med- well, medical intervention to bring them to life. And Paul thinks that's exactly what Israel's God provides in the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, like when Paul describes the state, like the state of things in some places, he describes people as existing like almost in a state of nothing. It's almost like a new creation that has to happen. God brings things out of nothingness or thing or not yep. being into being. It, yep. It's very interesting. I, he even seems to see that in the, the the conception of Isaac. Like they were dead. Like, I mean, he describes them, their bodies as like almost corpses, you know, and, yep. and then out of that comes life. And he sees that as uh, kind of figuratively, you know, pointing ahead towards yeah. this kind of reality. Yeah. Where does the, so you, you have quite a bit on, on the role of the spirit and yep. I'd love to spend some time there or Pluma, um, yep. and love to spend some time just getting your thoughts on that. I think one of the things that will be new to many listeners, uh, it was new to me until I started reading like Enberg Peterson and yep. more stuff, you know, more recently, the different ideas about what Pneuma is and how it fits into, you know, different ancient cosmology. I, I think most Christians, when they hear spirit, they think immaterial. And so you get into the material, immaterial, all of this kind of stuff. So yeah, anything you want to share about that? How does yeah. the spirit, how does the spirit function in recreating, I guess you could say the, yeah. the, the dead person and, uh, and what exactly does Paul think spirit or Puma is? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot there to unpack. Let me, yeah. let me try to do so relatively succinctly. When we think of spirit or spiritual, I think every single one of us probably automatically thinks non-material right mm-hmm. you have spiritual blessings and material blessings mm-hmm. and that easily slides into sort of unreal i don't think we would you know most christians at least would go that way but there's a sense of an immaterialness a, a sort of non-physical and potential non-reality to it and i think most ancient readers in paul's day or many maybe many is better than most thought of spirit or puma the greek word puma in materialistic terms Mm-hmm. Um, the Stoics, we know this from the evidence, Stoic philosophy, the pruma is the best material. You have those four common elements that make up the universe. And there's a fifth, which, which actually Aristotle posits the ether, this heavenly substance, and that gets connected to pruma and it's the best stuff out there. Yeah. So it's not, yeah. we think of physical and material and Christian tradition generally via, um, 
late platonic thinking thinks of material as something that inherently unravels, ages, weakens, falls apart. And we know that from looking around our world, uh, things fall apart. Numa was different. It was eternal and uh, imperishable. It was incorruptible. It was perfect. So ancient Stoics thought of God as Puma in the soul of the universe, the cosmos. And I think Paul, you know, he's using this word in ways that at least are going to be received that way, which makes me think he had no problem thinking of God in material terms, but perfect, unchangeable, incorruptible terms still. And so when Paul talks about receiving the Puma, he thinks of sort of like a literal material injection of this substance and it's the messiah's substance this messiah's spirit and so there's now this tangible material connection between non-jews and jesus who's who paul calls the son of abraham and the seed of abraham and so because we have this connection there's now a familial genealogical relationship between abraham and jesus and ultimately gentile believers in jesus that then enables them to participate in all the fullness of God's life-giving mission in Jesus. So yeah, the the spirit you're saying this the or pneuma is what links Gentiles genealogically to Abraham. Yeah, is that yeah? And um, I think that's something too that may be different for a lot of people who haven't you know heard this before. I'd be curious to hear because you know people posited different things when Paul goes. I know you write about this more in, in one of your other books, but when Paul makes this big deal about being in Abraham uh, for, yeah. for Gentiles, some posit that maybe this is actually like a reaction to an argument, like his interest in Abraham is a reaction to the other position that has made a big deal about Abraham. Just keep reading the Genesis story and you hit Genesis 17 and we got circumcision. Um, or do you think that, no, I, you know, Paul, as he was thinking about this from the Genesis narratives, he, he thought, the only possible way for Gentiles to receive the blessing is they need to be genealogically connected to Abraham. And that that's the only way I'd be curious just to hear. Yeah. Obviously, obviously yeah. we're speculating here, but uh, you know, what? I jumped, I jumped to that Abraham stuff because it really fascinates me. Um, but I maybe shouldn't have just cause it was, it there's, it's so my answer was maybe a little wide ranging there. So J. Lewis Martin, a very major proponent in another school of interpretation, often apocalyptic, apocalyptic school, right, has argued that in Galatians, Paul moves, tries to move readers away from being concerned about being a son or heir of Abraham to being a son of God. And so it's all about getting Gentiles away from this Abraham centric narrative and ethnocentric narrative, ultimately, to a you're related to the divine father, God, not father Abraham. I think that's just, I think that's incorrect, and, but I understand why Christians do it, because we've had this this narrative that we are sort of a universal religion. We, unlike Judaism, uh, we don't care about genealogy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's absolutely false. I think Paul cares uh, a lot, and so that's why he has this really dense, really difficult argument in Galatians 3 and into 4 around Abrahamic paternity and Abrahamic sonship. And Paul's argument, and this is something that I, you, you mentioned Trolls Angbert Peterson earlier, this is something that I sort of stepped into almost accidentally when I was reading Trolls Angbert Peterson's book on, on the spirit. And I can't remember what else at the same time. And this, these connections were forged in my head, correct or incorrect, I don't know. Um, I like to think correct, obviously, that these promises to Abraham in the Genesis narrative are actually promises that ancient Jews and ancient Christians took to be resurrection promises, uh, eternal life promises. And we definitely see this in ancient Judaism and ancient Christianity. And I think Paul's playing with it too. He's just not as explicit um, as some of these other texts are. 
And so Paul thinks, okay, ultimately the end goal is resurrection life. God has promised this to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, which causes a real problem genealogically. Because if you're not Abraham's seed, you don't get it. Hmm. And so Paul thinks God's got to get Gentiles related to Abraham and Abrahamic seed. But if Christ is Abraham's seed and Gentiles have Christ's pneuma, Christ's spirit, they're in the Messiah and the Messiah is in them. They actually identify with the Messiah now and are related to the Messiah materially. And so now they get these promises that were given to Abraham and to his seed, particularly resurrection from the dead. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> and it's a different, it's a, a probably a different way of, of, putting it together than a lot of people are used to. Um, Because again, we don't, like you said, we we tend to read that Galatians argument. And for good reason, we we go to, you know, 328, 328, is it? You know, no longer Jew or Greek, slave and free, male and female. And for good reason, that's kind of like a centerpiece of a lot of what we glean from Paul. But yeah. that's actually a step in the argument. And the that's next right. the, the next line, I think, probably is more important for Paul, which is that you're all then sons of Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sons and heirs. Yeah, sons and yeah. heirs. Yeah. 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 See, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and of course, who is the Messiah? And so the claim isn't there's no longer male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. It's in Christ, right? In mm-hmm. the Messiah is the key point. Where? Mm-hmm. What's the location in the Messiah? And of course, the Messiah, well, the Messiah is Jewish and Abraham's son in seed is what is is what Paul has been arguing throughout Galatians 3. Yeah, that's good. You have a part on uh, resurrection that's interesting as well. Um, uh-huh. So there you know, different ideas about resurrection life, the state of the body. I think for many people, they're, the way it gets presented is overly simplistic, um, which is that either you have kind of no like you either have some immaterial spiritual existence no existence like at all or something like that or you have a bodily resurrection whatever that means and you know part of our thinking about paul is well what kind of body what what do we mean by material resurrection what what kind of body do we inherit i mean he says flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of god to what extent is Paul maybe operating from a different tradition than the Gospels, which do present Jesus in a bodily recognizable form, right? So I'd love to hear just kind of anything yeah. you want to share about about that. Yeah. So this is where that spirit material thing comes again, right? Uh, if I mean, we, the, the sort of two choices have historically been there's a spiritual resurrection as in non-bodily, non-physical, non-material. Your soul ascends to heaven or something. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that even means, non-materially, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. We, we just talk about stuff like that, but yeah. we what do we actually imagine that looks like? Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. Or, and so that's generally perceived, and I think rightly so, that's perceived to be out of line with sort of historical Christian claims about the resurrection. And so then the claim is, well, no, 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 it's bodily. But there's a little step that gets made there that I think Paul would say, oh, 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 time out, time out. And that's, oh, bodily. When we think bodily, we automatically, very naturally think flesh and blood, Mm because that's what we're in. That's Mm -hmm. what we are now. And so we think bodily must be flesh and blood. And I think Paul would say, there is a bodily resurrection because a flesh and blood resurrection would be a very bad thing. Why? Because flesh and blood is a type of material that's actually corruptible, perishable, mm-hmm. subject to death, subject to immorality mm-hmm. and desire, um, desires that lead to immorality. And so you don't actually want that in heaven. Imagine having that forever and ever and ever. It'd be nasty. And so it's sort of, uh, I always tell my students, it's sort of like the walking dead. Mm-hmm. There are some 
there are some uh, resurrections or resuscitations back to life that are good. There are others that are very, very bad. You don't want to come back to life in The Walking Dead. And so do you want that kind of body in the heavenly realms? Paul would say no. And so, mm. but not, he's not rejecting a bodily resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection, but your body has now taken on an entirely new substance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, it's a very dense section. I know it's highly debated. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of the keys for me is Paul says that the Messiah, Christ became a life-giving pneuma. In 1 Corinthians 15, you're thinking yeah, of, yeah. In yeah. 1 Corinthians yeah. 15, thanks, Max. Um, and so what does that mean? Other, to my mind, that doesn't, that couldn't mean anything other than the Messiah in Paul's mind, at least once the Messiah gets to the heavenly realm, is transformed into a fully pneumatic being. And, and that fits with the claim that sort of, you know, God is spirit in John 4 or something. Mm -hmm. How that maps on to like Luke, where you yeah. have clear flesh yeah. and blood, Jesus yeah. raised from the dead. I don't know. Part of me wants to say like, that you can reconcile that. And when Christ ascends, he becomes. Yeah, pneumatic. maybe. Possibly. So it's an empty tomb. The, the flesh and blood body of Jesus is resurrected, but it's also transformed to fit a new habitat once he gets up there. But then I don't exactly know how, if or how that aligns with, for instance, Hebrews. And, and, I was um, thinking of David Moffat's work on that in particular and the presentation <laughs> of flesh and blood in the <laughs> heavenly space, which is a very radical claim. I remember uh martha himmelfarb com contributed to a volume that i edited and she was yeah. looking at different presentations of like what goes on in the heavenly temple hebrews is kind of an outlier in having actual blood mentioned being oh. in that space now again people have read that differently and through different lenses but i'm persuaded that uh, by by david's argument on that and so yeah that'd be interesting like I, I suppose you still could reconcile it if after the offering is made, then the transformation happens or something yeah. like that. But yeah, I mean, in all of the texts that we have, when when human flesh comes into that space, it like it melts or it's like it, it has to like in a fiery transformation has to be yeah. reconfigured into the elements that fit that space or, or it's in a dreamlike state and someone has goes there in a dream. And so you don't. But but um yeah, it, it's interesting to think about. It probably also maybe, I don't know, your thoughts maybe fits with when Jesus talks about, you know, in the new, um, at the resurrection, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. We're talking about different kind of bodies maybe that don't, well, obviously there's, you don't have procreation because that's connected to mortality. Exactly. But yep. but, but maybe that's also then related to these, these kind of immortal bodies or, you know, different kind of bodies. and. Yeah. I mean, not that we have to go here, but I think it also raises all kinds of questions with with uh, more recent discussions uh, among disability theologians about, mm -hmm. you know, the nature of a person and um, what your identity is and, you know, what is a perfect body. I think you, you might have cited uh, Canada Moss's work on that, if I'm yep. not mistaken, yep. which, I, which I still need to read, actually. Um, but it, it does raise all, like, yeah, all kinds of questions like, do you, you know, in order to be in God's presence, you have to become something other than what you yeah. are or what you yeah. are. Like how we make of that. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's really fascinating to start. Well, to and down. there's another there's another article I cite in there that that talks about modern science and how we now realize that there are more non-human cells in our bodies than human cells. Right. So right. if the resurrection is a resurrection of flesh and blood. Like these, these gut flora that are not me, are they there? Um, and so there's, you know, I think it's really interesting, really fascinating. Yeah. I think it's a really good exploration of, you know, what it means to, what embodiment is, what humanity is in our 
you know, it's really easy to think of, of there's my body nicely contained and here's the exterior world and everything we're learning is exactly. saying it's, yeah. it's, it's so much messier. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think there's really good things about that, about how we're embodiment means immediate and, and automatic participation in everything around us. And, and so I, I don't think, I think there's really good theological meat there to explore. Yeah, you yeah. could probably even connect that to the the Adam coming out of Adama and like all of this yeah. kind of, you know, stuff. That's right. that, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I think that probably the biggest question that people have about the Paul within Judaism school, you, you sort of answer in the last chapter a little bit, yeah. which is the, okay, it's, it's good as so far as it goes with the Gentile problem, but what about Israel, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think what's behind that question, again, probably in part is like, to what extent can we then apply what Paul says to everything? Like, it, in a way, it's kind of trying to get back to, can we still have a little bit of the universal yeah. <laughs> yeah. application of, of, of Paul? And, and, uh, and how does that work? And I appreciate in the book, you said, you know, there, there could be a bunch of what about isms, but you just wanted to kind of lay out the case. And I think that's that's really helpful, because if you started trying to answer every objection that someone might have in each chapter, this book would have been about I mean, you might start approaching Tom's tome on Paul or something like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 so but but I, I'd love to hear just your answer to that as you want to lay it out. And then maybe I have a, a follow up or two, just clarification. Sure. But yeah, what is what does Paul think? about fellow Israelites, and I think particularly those who are, who are not in Messiah Jesus. Yeah, yeah. so th this is, um, oh, there's so much I could say here. Let me let me start it this way. So Ed Sanders, when he wrote his Paul and, Pel Paul within, no, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, I'm getting yeah. confused right now, yeah. book in 1977, his argument when he got to Paul was Paul's not worried about works righteousness, this whole reading's wrong. What's Paul's problem with Judaism? It's not and Christianity. Exactly, it's not Christianity. Yeah. And nobody found that compelling. But I actually think it's right. It's just worded badly, but it was worded in a way that only could make that made sense in the 70s. The point <laughs> is, and so this is part of it. He has already bought that there's a Judaism and there's a Christianity. And Paul doesn't use that language at all. Paul doesn't think of himself as not Jewish and now belonging to something called Christianity, something distinct and completely, completely distinct and separate from Judaism. So when Paul talks about his fellow Jews who don't believe in Jesus, so this is me rewarding Sanders, I think. His problem is that they don't believe in Jesus. Right, right. <laughs> Which is very, it sounds very silly, but it's actually, that's the point. The point is, he thinks Jesus is the Messiah who brings about the culmination of Israel's history and human history beyond that. And many of his fellow Jews, not all, but many and probably most, didn't recognize or didn't agree with Paul that Jesus was the Messiah. That's his problem. Not that they believe that they can earn their salvation, not because they're ethnocentric. They didn't identify the Messiah. And Paul, and this is, I think, really important. So this is Romans 9 through 11. Paul really talks about Israel. Problem, or his his argument is, and it's I think it's really, really important for modern Christians, and I wish 2,000 years of Christianity would have thought about this more, doesn't, like, lambast them or demonize them for missing what he believes to be the case. In fact, his argument is it's not even their fault. God has done this and he's done it for his sort of salvation historical purposes but it's not because they're you know sort of harshly disobedient or something it's part of the divine plan and it's a mystery mm -hmm. um, and so i think you know however we feel about that that's paul's argument yeah yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like Romans 9 through 11, where he ends with this mystery language and doxology, ending on kind of a note of hope. I think yeah. Paul is 
Paul is optimistic in some sense that there's this this mystery that he doesn't fully understand about a hardening, but he he sees in the future at some point an influx of of fellow Jews and I think what's complicated about that is we have the 2000 years of retrospect to see all of history, Jewish and Christian relations. But if we put ourselves in his shoes, right, when he's writing Romans, that's a very different perspective when he's saying things like that. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I do think I think I say this in the book. It'd be be very curious. It'd be very interesting to see, you know, if one could resurrect Paul right now or resuscitate Paul right now and he could reflect on the last 2000 years. You know, to what degree would his answer change or the way he answers, how would it change? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. But you're right. I mean, at the end of Romans 11, Paul, uh, I think, pretty clearly says God will have mercy on them all, meaning both Jews and non-Jews. And so there is a very hopeful. He's not pessimistic here. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. not God is done with all those Jews who rejected or didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah initially. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear, I know you've done a lot of work on Deuteronomy 32 in the past, yeah. uh, Moses' song, and uh, this is something that I've kicked around in my head. It could be totally bonkers, but I, I wonder if kind of the logic, I've wondered if the little bit of the logic of that song is in play in, 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 the, in Paul's thinking in that there is there is a state of of missing it or of, of, of missing God's initiative of a new covenant in the Messiah but that that's not the end of the story. Like you have to keep reading on that the end of the story is redemption at God's initiative. But that, yeah, there's a, a a temporary looking in from the outside, as it were. And I guess he says that he hopes that that will provoke them, provoke right. jealousy or zeal that they will. But I, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more of your thinking on that. So the the new covenant has come in the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, what do you make of that in Paul's thinking? And what does that mean for like, what does he have? Do you think he has theological resources that he's drawing on from Israel's scriptures yeah. to, to make sense of the present reality that he's addressing there? Yeah. I mean, obviously I guess he's citing scriptures throughout yeah. that, that passage, but uh, yeah. Also, yeah. well, I mean, you know, Paul wasn't the first Jew to, to wrestle with uh, Israel's God's chosen people. But there's this awful situation happening mm-hmm. now. Whatever that awful situation is, exile or, or what have you, um, even, you know, uh, life within the land that isn't ideal. And Paul's dealing with that now because he thinks, I mean, it's maybe slightly more potent or, or more um, pointed because Paul thinks this is the ends of the ages and the Messiah has come. And it is not unfolding like Paul expected it to and like others had expected it to. You mentioned Deuteronomy 32, and it's exactly right. And there are a number of other texts that use Deuteronomy 32 as sort of a historical um, template for understanding the current situation. The Testament of Moses does this. 4Q372, a text from Qumran does this. And other texts do this as well. And they're trying to make sense of things aren't right. We're not where we ought to be. Why aren't we there? And Deuteronomy 32 gets used as sort of theological and scriptural basis for an explanation with also, as you noted, that hopeful ending. Like this is not the end of the story. Deuteronomy 32 ends hopefully, and this is, our history will end. This story will end hopefully for us too, or uh, positively for us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's good. All right. One more, one more question, kind of clarification question. So, the solution for the Gentile problem is is Pneuma, um, yeah. the transformation of Pneuma. I guess Paul would also say you need Pneuma to live in the the new creation or the new reality, right? So yeah. 
so Jews and the Messiah would also need the same pneuma. I mean, right? We, we see yep. that in, in Acts as well. So the end, I guess the end goal of like that ultimate transformation would be the same for, for, for Jew or Gentile. So I, I guess I, I, I'm wondering, like, is there an extent to which, and I, I, I don't know, I could just be, this is kind of just spitballing here, but is there ex- an extent to which like that reality or end goal in some sense in Paul's thinking kind of like oversees the the distinctions that he sees between Jew and Gentile, if, if that makes sense. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about like like what he says in um, in Philippians 3 when he's going through his criteria. And I, I don't think in any way, I mean, that's a great, great evidence for Paul doesn't see any problem with Judaism. Like he's yeah. listing off his his former life, not to speak negatively of it in any way, yeah. um, but to say that in comparison to the righteousness that comes through the Messiah, that the, the ultimate transformation, that all kind of pales in comparison. And so I don't know if that makes sense what I'm saying. I, I guess I'm trying to get at like when we're thinking about like Paul's like ultimate goal of where he sees all things headed, how does that inform the the Jew Gentile distinction? Yep. Yeah. You know, okay. so let me let me try to answer it this way. So I think Romans 11 really helps us get to a lot of this here. So this is one of the and this is, I think, what you were were maybe hinting towards, and maybe I should have tried to pick it up earlier, it's very common to read the Paul within Judaism school or the radical new perspective or whatever term you want to use for it as this is, Paul is only concerned about Gentiles. Jews are good as Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very but common... The, but it's the two ways kind of approach. Two right. paths to salvation. Jews don't need Jesus. Gentiles do. Um, and that's, um, you know, John Gager and... and um, Lloyd Gaston sort of promoted that. And I think most people within this broader school, unruly school of readers, doesn't take it that way because Paul's hard to read that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems sort of weird that the Jewish Messiah wouldn't relate to the Jews um, in Paul's thinking. So I think that's exactly right. Paul really thinks the Jews also do need Jesus. In Romans 11, I think uncovers uh, what Paul's thinking is everything's going, you know, relatively according to plan. The Messiah comes. And many Jews don't recognize him as the Messiah. And that's the point where things go off the rails. And so that's where you get Paul's image of the olive tree in Romans 11. There's this mm. cultivated olive tree, which represents in some way or form Israel. And the individual branches are Israelites. And they get, um, well, bent, broken off, whatever. And wild olive branches representing the Gentiles. Get, Gentiles who believe get um, grafted in. And the whole point is it's not... Uh, you know, some sort of wickedness or some sort of abstract theory about salvation that breaks them off, like works righteousness or whatever. It's that they just missed the Messiah, the telos, the end goal mm-hmm. of the law, um, according to Romans 10.4. And so all they need to do is recognize the Messiah and join this movement within larger Judaism and everything's good. That's great. I Really helpful to hear you unpack that. Because I, I do know that some people, when they hear Paul within Judaism, they only go to the two-way uh, right. approaches. As, and right. there, there is more diversity within yeah, different approaches within the school. The other facet to that, that I, I think I'm just doing a really, I was probably doing a really poor job of getting at it. Maybe I frame it this way. Paul would say, right, that all human beings, Jews and Gentiles, are yep. in are in Adam or in Adamic, Sarkic yep. uh, humanity. And, and that therefore... Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, better to be a Jew, <laughs> but but you yeah. would you would you would still need that ultimate uh, 
plumatic transformation to be a part of that new reality? Would you, yep. is that, yeah. Yeah, sorry, you know, you did ask that question and I sort of missed it with my answer. Um, I didn't get to that point. That is exactly right. So I think there's a Jewish problem and there's a Gentile problem. Okay, that, so that's, not, yeah. They're not exactly the same um, in Paul's mind. And so they get sort of different gospel takes. And Peter gives one to the Jews, generally according to Galatians 2, and Paul gives one to the Gentiles. I do think the Gentile problem is more severe. That doesn't mean the Jewish problem is, um, you know, minuscule, but they already have the law. That's already helped them to some degree. They already have Jewish scriptures. They're already related to Abraham, but they also need to be connected to the Messiah. And at the point that, in Paul's mind, at the point that Jews say Jesus isn't the Messiah, that's where they miss out on the benefits of Jesus's resurrection, including the reception of this uh, life-giving pruma that's going to to usher in the resurrection age. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, that that's what I was driving at, and that's yeah. that's super helpful. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. Yeah, and your you know your point about a different gospel. I mean. Back to your point about Acts, right? If Luke is reading letters and, and things like that, if you look at Peter's speeches to fellow Jews, it actually is a different gospel, yep. so to speak, or a different message than yep. what we find later on. It's like, yeah, you guys, we've killed the Messiah. We've missed it. Like, we need to repent and turn and recognize the Messiah, which is very different than what Paul is saying in yep. other places of the, yeah, so that, that makes good sense. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I mean, this has been such a rich conversation. There's a million other questions that I, I want to ask, but I highly, highly recommend this book to everybody, A Jewish Paul. It is, I, I think it's going to be for years to come, you know, the best intro uh, to Paul in many ways. And just, it's written in such a way that you can just pick it up, read it, understand it. So it speaks to, you know, Matt's, not just his command of the scholarship, but his ability to write clearly for, for a broader audience, which is not something scholars, not something people in our field always do well. And so when it happens, it's very worth acknowledging it because it's, it's helpful. I mean, this, the uh, Paul within Judaism stuff is something that I, I love. So I, that's the number one group that I go to every year at the SBL, but I don't know how many how many people outside of scholarship have really heard about that, thought about Paul in this way. And so this book's really going to put that out there for people to consider. And I think there's a lot to consider there. And um, yeah, so just thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate your scholarship. Well, thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, thanks. You've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you. Music.